This week on Cool Story, Bridie has read a juicy book about divorce. We do a deep dive into the ethics of true crime and why women are so obsessed with true crime content. And we talk about why and how millennials are drinking and consuming marijuana at stratospheric levels. This is Cool Story. I'm Bree. And I'm Bridie. Bridie, what have you been up to? Well, I had a family reunion this week. I feel like I say that every week. Yeah, I was just thinking, <laughs> well, am I in Groundhog Day or are you? <laughs> there's a lot of people to reunite with. My brother has been overseas for six weeks and seeing his daughter and all the rest of our family in Ireland as well as going around Europe. And he pretty much is like off the grid when he travels. You know, you don't hear from him at all. How divine. Yeah, which is so fair enough, except yeah. he rang me last week from an airport in Italy, he'd never been to Italy before, rang me and spent 15 minutes describing to me the McDonald's that he had had in Italy. <laughs> I don't know how to explain this, but that's very 2005. Yeah, well, he that's what he wanted to talk to me about it, tell me about it. I was like, sick, Shavis, anything else in Italy catch your attention? But no, that was pretty much it. And then Wait, what is McDonald's in Italy like? There's zucchini. Zucchini what? Like fried little bits of zucchini. There's speck on the burgers. And he also said that they did a special little thing with the sauce. Like they mix like a chili kind of sauce into the mayo and that. See, you're interested. Yeah, I'm interested. I don't even eat eat McDonald's, but that is interesting to me. I love McDonald's. And I do like eating McDonald's overseas, but I didn't eat McDonald's in Italy when I was there for, I think, obvious reasons. (laughs) (laughs) And then he came back last night and I went and picked him up and I love being at international arrivals. I just stand there and cry. Yeah, it makes me very emotional. Yeah, watching so. all the reunions. So that's, yeah, so I did my favourite pastime at international arrivals, arrivals, crying, and that was my week. What about Beautiful. yours? Love that for you. Well, the other day I went to the launch of, so the Human Rights Law Centre have launched this new report called The Cost of Courage, which is all about fixing Australia's whistleblower protections. And shout out to my dear friend, Kieran Pender, who we've spoken about, who is truly a renaissance man. He's one of like the big sports reporters for The Guardian, but also a senior lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre. And he's just authored this report about how Honestly, like, I mean, this is clearly paraphrasing how shithouse Australia's protections are, legal protections for whistleblowers. So last night at this launch, there was a keynote from Tony Fitzgerald, i.e. the Fitzgerald Inquiry Fitzgerald. And then this guy, Jeff Morris, who has an OAM now, was talking and his whistleblowing was what led to the Banking Royal Commission which obviously had colossal ramifications and many major banks had to pay billions of dollars to these regular Australians who they'd been ripping off. And Jeff Morris was saying people cheer whistleblowers, but they don't employ them. And that he constantly gets people who have information that they feel like they should share about wherever they're working or what they've seen or what they've seen done. And he basically has to tell them, if you whistleblow in Australia right now, you will lose your job and your career and all of these money and you will probably lose your family. And it was just sometimes in my life I feel like I've been in a room where something is happening that could change the course of history. 
and I felt like last night at this launch that I was seeing a, a change that made me really excited and optimistic. Kieran has written, because this whistleblowing can sound dry as a topic, but it's actually, as you just made very clear, extremely interesting with tons of like moral quandaries, like real life consequences for people, tons of drama. He writes about that fairly regularly for The Guardian, but it you also just reminded me of the whistleblower I was listening to on um, the 7am podcast that just did their series on RoboDebt that oh. Rick Morden, our friend Rick Morden did. Exactly. One of those episodes was with this woman, this extraordinary woman who tried to whistleblow, tried to whistleblow, tried to whistleblow on RoboDebt being wrong and ended up, she left the public service and part of it or a lot of it was very driven by nobody listening to her and her knowing how wrong this was. And I think that's episode two of the five-part series. The whole series is worth listening to, but that episode in particular is amazing. And Kieran just came off the last three weeks of constant reporting on the Matildas and then strolled in and launched his report. I do not know when that man sleeps. Yeah, that was in the mingling session afterwards last night. That was what everyone was talking about is like, how the fuck does Kieran Pender have six jobs? Well, and Well, while you were in a room feeling like it could be a turning point in Australia's history, this week I spent an entire day in bed for the leisure of it. Love that for you, Bridie. Lay it on me. I love doing that occasionally. That was Sunday. Had a very lazy, blazy day. And um, I read an entire book. It's a 150-page book, but I read so not super long. But it was an extraordinary book. It's called The Sarah Book by Scott McClanahan. It was published a few years ago, and it's autobiographical fiction about his divorce from his wife. I love divorce narratives. Yes, and so it's a divorce novel. He, I wonder how much of this happened and how much didn't. He is so, like, brutally honest is an overused phrase, borderline cliche, but he is so brutally honest about his role in this divorce and also about their fights and what they fought about. And he's also so funny, but never... Sarah is never the butt of anything. Like when he's been funny, she's not the butt of the joke. There's like no real fury against her. Like it's just a man really reckoning with how much he stuffed up his marriage. And and his the way he writes is exhilarating. Like it's proper page turner. Wow. Can you tell can you say like was there a big inciting incident or was it just like that led to the divorce or was it just a gradual? Yeah, it was more gradual breakdown of the marriage and he writes with so much love and awe about how they met and when they were first in love and then goes into the fights and how much he didn't want the divorce <gasps> but she absolutely was right to divorce him by the sounds of it did he well. fumble a bad bitch <laughs> he yes he it sounds like he fumbled a bad bitch and he knows it <laughs> And there's oh my god and but it's really funny but there are also just scenes like there's a scene with his mum, where his mum is comforting him as a mid-30s dad in the bathroom in the middle of the night, that it's just heartbreaking. Fuck. I, I think that he's a bit of like a cult hero in America, but I hadn't heard of him. And I just saw my friend post about him on my Lazy Blazy Sunday morning, downloaded the book onto Kindle and then just didn't get out of bed. For wow. hours. What's his name again? It. Scott McClanahan, and it was called The Sarah Book. We'll oh. put it in the show notes. How good. I, just very briefly before we move on, 
why am I so obsessed with divorce narratives when I have quite a happy marriage? I think about this all the time. There are many reasons I find them fascinating, but, like, do you also have a thing for divorce narratives? Absolutely. And I think you have a happy marriage and you also have parents who are still together. True. And you're interested. My parents broke up a very long time ago and they're good friends now and so I guess – and I've got a happy marriage, so I guess it doesn't matter which side you come from, you still find the story compelling. I think it's just a very human story and there's so many elements of what it is to be human and at the core of our lives, heartbreak, messing up, doing things you regret, feelings changing, loving a person and then hating a person to extremes of emotion. Mm. It's just – and also maybe we're just nosy. Yeah, and I think about that thing Esther Perel talks about really well, how these days, like never, ever before – the person you marry is supposed to be your everything, whereas in the past, and obviously it varies in different cultures, but in sort of broadly speaking Western culture, now your partner is like your sex partner but also kind of your like business and pragmatics and life partner but also your best friend and also your confidant and like when it becomes so much more of your identity and then if there is a split, it's like way more she talks about it being way more like shocking to sort of the core of who you are and the life choices you've made rather than just one part of your life that is no longer working the way you thought it would. Also, we didn't really need divorce 100 years ago before like the advent of antibiotics because you or your husband would just die by 40 (laughs) and now you get to 40 and you divorce. (laughs) Fuck, Brady. I'm sure you'll be fine, Brady. (laughs) divorce now that we uh no we do need divorce now that we don't just en masse die in childbirth yeah exactly oh exactly yeah. that as well advanced yeah that's right <laughs> usually we talk about what everyone's been talking about this week but i feel like this week we're going to be talking about what everyone's been talking about this year this decade mm. and that is mostly due to a lot of stuff you've been reading which you haven't told me about and i on purpose have avoided so i'm finding out Right now, right this minute, what it's about. I have some opinions about true crime. (laughs) I want to start talking about Rebecca Mackay's book, I Have Some Questions for You, which I recently finished. So in general, I do not read – I mean, for a start, I never listened to the Serial podcast. I've never listened to any true crime podcast series. I – watched the first season of Only Murders in the Building because I saw that the latest season just announced had Meryl Streep in it and the first season did not grip me. I didn't even hate it. I just felt an overwhelming sense of meh. But I also don't read a lot of books about, in particular, any kind of gendered crime. So it can be domestic and family abuse and violence or, like, sex crime because... For a very long time, I did that for work and for like very high stakes, very real reasons. And I certainly did not want to do it in my leisure time. And so it was pretty big for me to pick up this novel where this is Rebecca Mackay's I Have Some Questions For You. Because normally I would not choose in my leisure reading time to engage with something that is even tangentially about true crime. So the basic premise is that 
our protagonist, Bodhi, went to this sort of fancy boarding school for what we would call high school in New Hampshire. And while she was there, um, a classmate of hers, a girl in her year, Thalia, was killed. Thalia was found in the school swimming pool. And although she had technically drowned, she also had head injuries and marks around her neck. And they put someone in jail pretty quickly. Bodhi, our protagonist, is returning to the school in her 40s to teach some like sort of summer classes about um, media. Bodhi is a podcaster, but not a true crime podcaster. And Bodhi is questioning whether or not the man who went to jail for Thalia's death actually did it. And what a surprise, something I think this book deals with very well. Thalia was beautiful, rich, sort of perfect, gorgeous white woman, the guy that got put in jail, black man, who sometimes grew his own pot and liked to drive his car a little bit fast. And the methods of investigation were shoddy as fuck. This The, the, the killing happened in the 90s. What I think Mackay does so well in this book is that it's not that Bodhi, the protagonist, goes back and just sort of has all these memories come up and so just starts an, a true crime podcast. She's teaching a class of students about podcasting and another class about film and media and one of the students expresses a slight interest in this sort of old murder that happened on the grounds and Bodhi starts sort of gently encouraging that. And, of course, Bodhi then gets to hide how much she really wants to crack this case back open. But Thalia's family obviously feel like the guy who's in jail actually did it and they have closure and they do not want it back open again. The book really makes you sit with how everyone who engages with true crime to any degree has some kind of conflict of interest. Nobody arrives at the material with like totally clean hands and purely altruistic intentions. And I just think that's what a novel is for, to make you, like it's such a rare form of art to make you and force you sit with the complexities of any given issue. And if you're, if you also, if you're listening to this and you also feel even slightly conflicted about true crime as a genre, I have some questions for you by Rebecca Mackay. Delicious sitting in that cesspool. Is there anything in life that people arrive to with clean hands and purely altruistic intentions? No, but I think what makes true crime different is that you are finding human beings at the worst and most pained and often most vulnerable point in their lives when either they have been targeted for a crime or find themselves accused either rightfully or wrongfully of a crime. And you are like, that is often sort of the most desperate a human can be. And so... And you think we shouldn't engage with that? Not shouldn't engage at all, but I think surely it's fair to say that the way the public's hunger for true crime details has fed this sort of content beast of a machine has gotten out of control and reflects on society very poorly. I don't think that people's interest in true crime reflects on society poorly. What? Why do you think that? Do you think that I think, do you think that people are interested in true crime purely for entertainment reasons? Like it's a form of entertainment to them and that's it. 
that's where it begins and ends. Why aren't they then like reading journalism about it? But they do. Oh, my God. They read so much journalism about true crime. And a lot of the podcasts, I guess there's a very, very, very broad spectrum of true crime, right? Yes. So, and reading journalism about it, like I think depending on the outlet and depending on the journalism, it can be very gratuitous. Yes, I agree with that. Yeah, And so just just because you read the journalism doesn't mean that, you know, that's a better way to consume it rather than podcasts, especially when true crime is done in a interesting, respectful way. But people read the journalism all the time. That's why it's a headline all the time. Yeah, you're like, right. I didn't articulate myself very well. I think what I still feel burned by from even having worked in the courts in Queensland for a year was the absolute sort of backlog of horrific matters making their way through that was so like sort of mundane and quotidian that never got any attention. And I want to bring that back to the sort of there's a gendered component and there's a racial component where the more kind of beautiful and perfect the victim, the more likely they are to get media attention. And we even see this with Me Too, where there are only like certain survivors who speak out who get these kind of massive public campaigns underway. And I I think people don't sufficiently interrogate why some crimes interest them and others don't. Don't you think do you think that's fair to say? I think that's fair to say, but I think Going out of true crime, like how much do people interrogate what they're interested in and what they're not interested in in general? I think true crime as a genre and the explosion of it, there are definitely issues with it and there are definitely ethical issues with how some of it is done. But I also think that, you know, what's really interesting to me is studies have shown this, that the overwhelming audience for true crime are women. Yes. I want to talk about this. And so and I think that aspect is really interesting. And I do I just do not think that women are consuming it broad. We're gonna to have to speak in generalizations, I think, at some points in this discussion. Yeah. Broadly, I don't think that these women are consuming these stories because they're entertained and they find it entertaining. What? Do you really think they're entertained by Well, what do you mean by entertained? Their attention is captured in a way that makes them feel emotions and they choose to do that with their time. Yeah, I think they're interested. I think there's a difference between entertained and being interested. I don't think that they think of these, especially the victims. I think that when women are consuming true crime, they are far more likely to identify with the victims than with the killer. I don't think that they see the victims as a character in a play or like a character in a movie, I think that they very much know this is a real woman that this happened to. And it speaks to the vulnerability. I think that a lot of women can feel in society. Also, death is interesting. Like it is just interesting. It's it's going to happen to all of us. Even when someone dies of, you know, natural causes, it can still be very interesting. We're compelled by those stories. We know that we're all going to die. And also it's final obviously. So I think that that's part of the interest in it. And that's a morbid interest. You know, I know I'm going to die. What if I died in a really dramatic way? There's also, I think they see the vulnerability in the victims. I also think that there's a big element of how can I protect myself against this, even though they don't really need to, like the odds of you getting murdered on the street or picked up and murdered are actually very, very low. But I think that women, speaking broadly, 
uh, generally walk around a lot in the world feeling vulnerable, like knowing that if someone grabbed them, they might be the weaker one. They might not be able to fight it off, fight off the person, almost always a man. Mm. And I think that that's part of it as well, like giving yourself like a false sense of security. And I think that the stories, we're just, we're at a very, very base level. And this is almost at the core of all novels, almost all movies and almost all journalism. We are interested in each other and we're interested in what happens to each other. And we're interested in things out of the ordinary. And these stories are in general, very out of the ordinary. And I think the other aspect of these stories that really interests people I think that there is a lot of um, sympathy and identification with the victim and but I also think that there's also the psychological element that's really interesting around the killer, which is what makes a person this way. Like this is a really extreme example of what humanity is capable of, especially when it comes to serial killers, and we all want to know what makes someone that way. I think what I would push back on there is something you mentioned about like thinking about how they could sort of protect themselves and identifying with the victims. And I agree, I should say, I completely agree with what you said, that there's something very, very human and basic about connecting to somebody else's story and understanding the world through telling our stories and hearing other people tell their stories. And I think maybe listening to you talk helped me realize for the first time that one of the reasons I get defensive is because I worked so hard for so many years trying to achieve meaningful law reform that might actually make the world a little bit better for women. And it was so consistently difficult to get people to pay attention, let alone turn up for letter signings, let alone even just sharing an article compared to the tens and hundreds of thousands of people who would listen to hours and hours of true crime podcasts and share links to true crime podcasts. And I think I get frustrated when society or segments of society only want the story bit but don't actually seem to care or show any effort towards the meaningful change bit in the exact same arena. But how do you get people to turn up to the letter signing and how do you get people to do the rallying and how do you get people to email the MP? With fresh blood. Put a human face on it. Put a human story. And this is broadly also a rule. This is also broadly applies to journalism in general. You get some data, say even from the ATO or whatever, or you get some data about welfare like, you know, 20% of welfare recipients can't afford to eat every day. You see that in a headline, you're like, that's really sad. If you have in that, if you have in that story instead, like, or that headline or the lead of that story, this is mother, she can only eat dinner five days a week and she says this is what she misses out on, that's what people engage with. So if you want people to do the action, you have to bring in the human face or the human story of it. Otherwise, it's just way too abstract. I know. And and I had to do that. I had to, like, fucking flay myself publicly for years because I got really tired of asking other survivors to speak so that, like, trying to get new coverage for the latest round of whatever was going to whatever attorney general. And I just... It, bums me out. I think it just bums me out. Like why, why do we always need more blood? Like why do we always need more victims? Like it just, 
I I think it makes I don't know. It makes me uncomfortable. It makes me sad that we need to see someone else's pain in front of us in order to be moved. Even though I know but we you do. You want people to be moved by data. I like. I'm I moved agree. by data. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very moved by data. <laughs> but that the average person. Is not moved. Is not. And also, and when you say, I totally understand your frustration and I do think, and I am not defending true crime, you know, all of it as a a genre and I actually don't listen to it that much and I am uncomfortable with aspects of it. Like that show, My Favourite Murder, I haven't listened to that show in years so I don't know if they still have this tone. But when it first came out and became big, I listened to it. You probably never listened no. to it. So my favourite murder was these, is, is these two women basically talking about a murder and going through, you know, they go through serial killers or random murders and how it happened. So even the title of it, My Favourite Murder, gives me the ick. And they refer to their um, listeners as murderinos. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah, yeah, and it's like this real kind of um, kitschy way of speaking about it and that gives me the ick. Okay, so if it's a spectrum, we've established that that's at one end of the spectrum. Yeah, and then I guess, and also when you say that, you know, people need to be compelled into to the streets, I guess like look what happened with Jill Ma. People were compelled into action by that story and there are certain stories that mean that laws change, that reforms are made, that society is made better and it is very sad that a lot of the time, particularly in like law reform, there has to be a dead body or multiple dead bodies to, to spur that on. Something else I want to talk about here though, which is my one, not my one, but something that excites me almost philosophically perhaps about the potential for some types of true crime. Really, it came to me when I was reading this fantastic New Yorker article I want to talk about. So in the print version I have here, it's called Hidden Depths, but the online version I'm pretty sure is called How an Amateur Diver Became a True Crime Sensation. Great online headline. Yeah. We'll link that in the show notes. Yes, we'll link it in the show notes as always. So it's basically about, it begins as a profile of a man called Jared Lysick, uh, and then it talks about the sort of online true crime community as in like forums of people exchanging theories and going down rabbit holes of research called the place is called web sleuths and then the part that I'm not going to talk about too much is that then you eventually you find out that Lysik himself has been accused by a cousin of like a historical horrific sounding sex crime and that sort of online true crime community who wants blanket adored him, then sort of obviously, well, you would hope obviously kind of turn on him. But what I want to talk about is how Lysik is not actually a true crime guy and he's not someone who ever appears to be particularly motivated by an innate sense of justice. What he actually is is like a failed entrepreneur bro. <laughs> He, this is, this is, this article is what makes it so good. It's like one of those delicious New Yorker or like Vanity Fair long form pieces where you're just like, like it just takes all these unexpected twists and turns. So he founded this company called Adventures with Purpose in 2018 when he already had two bankruptcies on his record for failed other businesses. The name Adventures with Purpose was spat out for him by a business name generator. He began it at first, it was always a YouTube channel and it started around powered 
paragliding, <laughs> which didn't get any traction. And then he pivots to diving. But he originally pivoted to diving for like lost valuables. And he would just sort of jump into any random murky lake in America and like see what he found. And when he was doing that, he started getting some traction on the YouTube channel. And interestingly, back then when he was just sort of diving for interesting things and sometimes treasury things, the vast majority of his audience were men. And then this change happened in 2019 when he found two stolen guns in a lake and they made the title of the video something slightly true crimey and it was like, boom, classic sort of entrepreneur pivot where he realises that if he makes content and uses hashtags. This is so fascinating to me. He started using hashtags. The previous ones were hashtag scuba diving and hashtag like river treasure. And then he started labeling them hashtag cold case and hashtag true crime. And he blew up really quickly. Their annual budget swelled to more than a million dollars a year and their audience became almost totally women because it became about true crime. And then this is the sentence that made me gasp when they start talking then about the web sleuths online community. The internet has added a new dimension to the persistent fascination with crime stories. It has made the genre participatory. Does that not give you chills? Because people are trying to solve crimes online or think that they can solve it online. Because it makes it, it gamifies it. Yeah, they're inserting themselves in. And so this I mean, there's so much more I could talk about this article. I feel like I'm going on and on, but. You're not at all. It's so okay. interesting. Yeah, okay, I good. am all completely right. compelled. <laughs> okay, good. Keep going because yeah. it's really, it's very compelling. Okay, good, good, good. So. I'll tell you when you're boring, Brie. <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing, right? Lysak travels around and there are people all over America, as you can imagine. I'm sure there are people all over the world who have unanswered questions about disappeared loved ones. And they just write in, well, this is in the past, so they just wrote in to Adventures with Purpose explaining their sort of story about how someone they loved went missing and they, you know, were last seen driving past XYZ Lake or they knew that their mum often went to ABC River. Lysik just goes in for no money because he's making all of his money and he's making a lot of money through merchandise and you know youtube subscribers and for for a lot of people he gave them real closure where local police authorities either couldn't or didn't want to be bothered the whole profile opens with this woman carrie may parker this story about sorry a woman carrie may parker who like disappeared back in 1991 and her daughter had sort of just been told that her mum lived a turbulent life and they just sort of thought that she would turn up eventually. Like reading between the lines, there are people in our society who law enforcement care significantly less about when they go missing. I was just about to say, as soon as you said turbulent life, I'm like, AKA, they don't care. Yeah. Like if you are a known user of drugs, if you are a sex worker, if you are like, well, in Australia, if you're an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, like- there are all of these fucked up reasons why if you don't show up where people think you will, they're like, there's often way less enthusiasm by authorities to investigate immediately while things are fresh. And what 
I just got excited about for a while reading here was like, what if the true crime community could become this extraordinary force for police accountability and for getting results for people when police either can't or couldn't give a fuck about getting results for people. And then flips it on its head because Lysik's team go into this town when a young woman has only been missing for like a fortnight. Her family are in the town. There are poles around town with posters on her, them with pictures of her face. Lysik does the dive and finds a body and oh my god puts it on facebook before <gasps> the family yeah oh my before the family. god what wait before the fa- the yeah. family knew or the family posted on facebook as the news spread through Truckee, the town there was criticism that the group lysix group had rushed to post on facebook before officials confirmed the identity of the remains oh my god you have the potential for extraordinary good but so long as what it is fueled by is clicks and eyeballs and getting there first and getting the news out it's always just going to be so risky that the core kind of human to human element is put second somehow that is such a complicated story and it honestly makes me sick yeah, listening to that. I had on purpose avoided this story, so I'm hearing for it for the first time from you. And it it shows that really is a great illustration, as you said, of the extraordinary good that could be done in this area and also how exploitive it becomes. And also, obviously, there is some element of the victims not being human beings, just being vehicles for clicks. And but it, is that the issues with true crime as a genre broadly. Yes, it can be the issues with true crime. Is it also the issue with human beings in general? Yes. Like so many, like that story could be told about so many different things, couldn't it, where human beings have the opportunity to do something extraordinary and instead they do something completely and utterly self-serving or they just make a complete joke out of something really serious. You've just reminded me of a story I didn't tell for many, many years because I didn't want to seem ungrateful at all. In 2019, my memoir won the um, True Crime Award for that year's Ned Kelly Awards. And for anyone unfamiliar, the Ned Kellys are the annual crime writing awards. And there's an award for best like debut crime fiction, best crime fiction and best true crime. Putting aside for a moment what it feels like for my memoir to win a true crime award. At the awards ceremony, I'm obviously very, very grateful, but at the awards ceremony, there was a really kind of obviously celebratory, drinky, dancey party mood on the night. People were thrilled that John Ibrahim was in attendance, for example, and there were sort of speeches by people with interesting stories to tell, breaking up the awards being handed out. And the woman who spoke immediately before I was going to be announced was a retired police officer with, you know, years and years of experience who got up and told real stories, like, but in a sort of stand-up routine you know, trying to make the audience laugh, trying to pick up on the awards celebratory vibe of the night, real stories that she had seen and investigated. 
And the story I remember most clearly was that she was describing the body of a sex worker and sex worker is not the term that this cop used and it was the punchline of this cop's joke that this sex worker had the most serious case of an STD or STI that the cop had ever like seen or heard of. And again, that is not the language that the cop used. And this was a police officer just being so willfully dehumanizing and cruel. It was cruel the way that story was told and the audience were in stitches laughing about how gross this dead woman's body was. And then immediately after I got called onto stage to accept an award for the best true crime title of the year. And I will never forget how fucked up that was. And I think, I, I mean, I remember at the time I said something like, oh, I would have said it better now, obviously, but you're just on the spot. And I just sort of said, look, I understand that crime can be entertainment, but especially when we're talking about true crime, we're talking about human beings and real human being stories. And mine is one of them. And I just saw the whole, like, I would say of the room I was looking out at, three quarters of the people sort of did like a cringe eye roll and about a quarter of the people like nodded and just started clapping really loudly. It was so fucking weird. Good on you for doing that in the moment. That is disgusting. What that woman did was disgusting. And I think says more and reveals something about the culture of police in this country than anything else. And I'm disgusted to hear that. And I'm also disgusted to hear that because, you know, death is funny and death can Mm, be funny. I agree. Anyone who's been through someone they love dying knows that in that devastation you laugh. Mm. Like there is... There is all in my experience, and I, I thankfully don't have a vast amount of experience with people I love dying, but I have had a few people I love die. And in all the devastation and the tears and the shock of it and the deep, deep sadness, there is always laughter. It's always funny. The butt of the joke is not the dead person. Mm. That's not what the joke usually is in dying. And also I think that anyone who knows people who work in healthcare. Yeah, well, yeah, I was going to say broadly any anything that has to do with death. Like I don't know if you would have experienced this in your work in law, although maybe it would have been a bit different, but certainly in healthcare, doctors and nurses do joke about death. You have to deal with being there. Your job, your daily job is being there on the worst day of people's lives and seeing really tragic, really sad things. And there has to be some type of coping mechanism in in that. And from what I have seen from the people I know, and I know a lot of people who work in healthcare and am related to them, very useful people, unlike me. <laughs> Humour is absolutely a coping mechanism in that, but I have never seen nurses or doctors joke about death where the dead person is the butt of the joke. Yes. Like broadly it's the butt of the joke is your reactions, your vulnerability, your emotions, making a joke about your emotions and also just the ridiculous awkward things that happen when someone is dying as well because it is like a very physical thing. So there is such a difference between that and how and using it as a coping mechanism and the jokes we all make about death and the laughter that we've all had when people are close to us are dying 
compared to that police officer who was making a victim and a woman who may may have had a hard life, probably enjoyed life a lot at times, probably suffered a lot at times like almost everyone and the joke being her and the way her body looked and things that had happened to her and that there was just never any excuse. Not only is there never any excuse for that, it's also just not funny. Like you're not being funny. Those jokes are shit. Your jokes are shit. I think that's what cut me up about it so much was just how much everyone in the room laughed. Why do you think they laughed? Because what? I don't know. I'm the one sitting here asking you why the fuck everyone loves true crime so much. Fucking I'm the serious <laughs> one about this. <laughs> I can't believe people would even laugh at that. I, yeah. Uh, yeah. Good on you for in the moment being able to get get up on stage and say something publicly because that can so often be a situation where you look and that this is an extreme version of that situation where, you know, we've all done it, like lay awake at 3 a.m. with Mm. what we wish we had said and you did say something. Well, I was walking up onto the little podium and I was like, you know, I could just skip my thank yous and say fuck you. (laughs) 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 Which, you know, like I I would be willing to do, but I was like what's actually strategic or like what? Because I was thinking it's not just about me, although I was deeply offended and it's not just about the woman who had died in some sort of abstract or principled sense. What I've learned in my work in the last few years is that you never know who else is in the room, like listening, who is themselves maybe a sex worker or has been in the past or is themselves or a someone they love. Or some, yeah, like, yeah. And I was like, no, I just you just say something that lets anyone who's sitting in the room right now feeling like a piece of shit because they're, they or their loved ones are like the butt of these people's jokes. You just are letting them know that not everyone is like that. And just circling back to end is that there is a question I wanted to ask you that kind of circles back to the beginning and then we'll move on to the biggest story of the week. <laughs> this is clearly the biggest story of our weeks. <laughs> yeah. This is, well, this is the thing that everyone is talking about constantly. Yeah. True crime. Why do you think women are the biggest audience and the biggest consumer of the genre of true crime? Because of fear. I don't even know that. I could off the top of my head articulate it, but I think it has something to do with whether it's real or an illusion, if you know enough about how it's happened, how it happens, you can somehow arm yourself with awareness that what helps you avoid, minimize, deal with in some way. I think there are like I think it's a version of that. And I think, yeah, I think there's something there. You mentioned it in in one of your answers, like wanting to feel, right? Yeah, like you can protect yourself. I love how you very eloquently just answered your own question from 20 minutes ago (laughs) about why do people read all these books and listen to all these podcasts and and click on all these links and do these forums because I think that is at the core of it for a lot of women. It's not just being entertained. Although there is certainly an element of that. Yeah. So actual, <laughs> actual biggest story of the week. This is fascinating also. It is so interesting. Breaking news. People love drinking. <laughs> <laughs> Some people. Yes. Okay. So the biggest story of the week that I've seen go bonkers online is headlined, middle-aged adults are binge drinking and using marijuana at record levels from the New York Times. And this article is based on a study 
which has turned up, a um, study that's gone over many years and has turned up very interesting stats such as in 2012 in the age group 19 to 30-year-olds, 35% of them self-reported binge drinking. That has now 10 years later dropped to 30%, which is a huge drop. 28% of 19 to 30-year-olds in 2012 uh, smoked pot or did marijuana in whatever form. Did marijuana. Did, ate it. Smoked it. <laughs> I actually don't have that much experience in marijuana from my early 20s. Uh, Injected marijuana. <laughs> that was 28% in 2012. Now 44% are using weed in whatever form. And I, what interested me was the stats for 35 to 50-year-olds, which would have been those 19 to 30-year-olds tw- in 2012. You know what I mean? So yes. in 2012, those were the 35% binge drinking. So in 2012, 23% of 35 to 50-year-olds were self-reported binge drinking. Now that's 30%. So do, do, what does that tell you? The millennials have never stopped partying. Yeah. The Zoomers aren't drinking and it's becoming quite unfashionable and the millennials have just kept going. Gone From hard. their late teens and their 20s into their 30s and 40s, they still love to party. Uh, but they've also had a big increase in weed as well. Um, 13% of 35 to 50-year-olds in 2012 did weed. <laughs> did- <laughs> they, I think they're not just smoking it. Like I don't want – I think that a big part of this trend, because we can go into what, what we think of the things behind this trend, a big part of this trend I think is edibles. Yes. And so that's why I'm not saying like smoking weed, just, you know, consuming, consuming weed. Anyway, 13%, 35 to 50-year-olds in 2012, now 28%. That's a lot. That is huge yeah. jump. Yeah. All the millennials are drunk and stoned. <laughs> okay. When you sent me this link, the first immediate thing I thought of, did you ever watch um, Fran Leibowitz's Pretend It's a City? Yes, loved it. Okay. So one of the many hilarious sort of quippy things she says is when she's talking about drinking and smoking weed. And specifically, she's really talking about smoking weed. So, and I found her exact quote from this segment. She says, and I'm reading out loud, I do have friends who are around my age or even older who I know to have been daily marijuana smokers for 50 years. These are not the most acute people on the planet. (laughs) (laughs) Let me assure you that there is an aggregate effect. Because I knew them when they started, okay? So they're not like dangerous people, but maybe they're not the people you would consult anymore. (laughs) Sometimes, my God, I think, what happened to him? I asked him something and he was so vague. I asked her what happened and she goes, he's a pothead. I forgot. Our wanna... friend, but are your friends happy? Yeah. Are and... they dumb but happy? Yeah. Something we can all aspire to. <laughs> As she said, like the, the bit she says after that is like, let people do what they please. But I do, <laughs> that um, is something that anecdotally I have also seen in my life. Well, this is what really interested me. The headline, the drinking I've definitely seen anecdotally, and, I, and I've talked about this at work, about how I've noticed at work that, when we have work events and drinks and whatever, or almost all the Zoomers don't drink at all. And they're fun and they like they'll come out and hang out and they're um, you know, I love hanging out with them. But I do notice a lot that pretty much none of them are drinking. Meanwhile, 
everyone in their mid-30s and 40s is still going just as hard as we did 10 years ago when we had a work event, which isn't like my colleagues don't really get really, we don't get really, really messy, but it is just, you know, having a good time. Everyone like, you know, they have a few drinks, they're having a good time. And I noticed there's such a generation gap in that. And the other thing that I've noticed hugely anecdotally, and I was so pleased to see data put to it, was almost every woman I know in her 30s and 40s is taking weed gummies. Mm. Is on a Friday night, not kicking back with a glass of wine, they're having a gummy and then like watching a movie or watching TV show and then having the best sleep of their life and, you know, waking up the next day with no hangover and feeling great. I have seen a huge uptick in how much people on the internet talk about being California sober. Yeah. Like Which is not California sober is when you don't drink at all but you do weed. Yeah. I also found this article I thought you would really like. And I just, you'd already sent me the link to those extraordinary New York Times stats. So this is an article from GQ UK written by a woman whose real name apparently is Daisy Jones called How the Drunk Party Anthem Sobered Up. And it's about how songs, because the New York Times article that you were talking about talks about how clearly there must be like cultural reasons for these very distinct differences between age demographics, right? And this article is about how songs that are at the like big pop anthem club songs used to be all about getting wasted. And these days, like the only ones that mention drinking are like ones where you are like crying and sad because you're drinking. So I'm reading here, you know, the article, of course, starts with the classic relatable personal preamble. And then they mention like Keisha's song where she's brushing her teeth with a bottle of Jack. Rihanna was cheersing to the freaking weekend. And every university bar selling alien green shots for £1.50 was blasting the worst song in the world, Shots by LMFAO <laughs> featuring Little John. The chorus goes, shots, 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 shots. Shots, 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 shots. <laughs> so listen to this. There was actually a study released in 2013. So this is the study was released 10 years ago now, but it's still interesting when we're looking back on that previous sort of decade in the previous generation. Among 720 songs in the Billboard's most popular songs list in the years 2009, 2010, and 2011, Almost a quarter of them mentioned alcohol and nearly half of those mentioned a specific brand of alcohol. It just used to be this thing that in This is when music, I came of age as well. Yeah. I, I got a feeling by the Black Eyed Peas. Exactly. And it's just, has anyone, has any one song sounded more furiously 2010 than Flo Rida's Club Can't Handle Me featuring David Guetta? <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so, like, that is exactly when I was at, the clubs is when one in four songs was explicitly about getting fucked up drunk. Well, I still haven't left the clubs. <laughs> and for the record, you make a mean party playlist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I now have to like schedule my clubbing uh, into my busy life. So my theory, I have a couple of theories on this and my grand overarching theory about Zoomers drinking a lot less. And, you know, I have no judgment on that being a good or bad thing. You know, I I love partying. I think it's fun within reason. I obviously couldn't do it every weekend anymore, but I don't think it makes you more fun or boring if you do or do not drink. So that's fine and beside the point. But my big theory on Zoomers not drinking is that everyone has a camera now. And I think... Oh, my God. Yeah. 
I've thought a lot about this and I think it's about feeling that you could be like feeling surveilled to a degree and also feeling you have to always be in control because if you're, you're, Free's literally dying right now. She's got like full body shudders, full body shudders thinking about the footage they could have made of her in 2010. (laughs) I have shudders about it, but when I think, when I think about, I think, wow, the things I got up to and how loose I used to get. And how mortifying that would be at that age to be filmed in that state and how it could have been distributed as well. And don't you think that that must be an element of why they're not drinking because they don't want to lose control and then be filmed or photographed in that state? Bridie, a thousand percent agree. Makes me feel sick to my stomach thinking about not even the like, not seriously bad, just fucking embarrassingly bad dumb stuff I used to do and all my friends. And I think it's two levels here. There's like the social embarrassment and there's also the kind of in a way legitimate, in a way illegitimate finger wagging younger people have grown up with, which is like if something goes online, it's online forever and it can fuck up your career and like your employment prospects if there are just pictures and videos of you just doing dumb shit on the internet. Yeah. I think that and I also just think the immediate – social humiliation of walking into school and everyone having, you know, that video of you greened out at the camp draft when you're 16. (laughs) Just a random example I'm pulling out of thin air. (laughs) And I think the rise in weed, the trend in weed, I think is also just like directly correlated with it becoming more socially acceptable to the point that it's legal in so many places, you know, legal in most of America. So, of course, more people are going to do it and also finding funner ways to consume it. You know, I would. Oh, yeah. I never really liked. I love ciggies and I cannot wait to take them up again when I'm 70, but I never really liked a joint or a bong. I never actually liked it. I've only really in my late teens and 20s honestly tried it a handful of times because I just didn't like the feeling or, Mm. you know, doing it. Just not for me. And maybe I've saved a few brain cells, according to Fran. Don't worry, I obliterated them in other ways. (laughs) But And now there's like a more chic way to consume them. Like all the women I know in their 30s and 40s who are doing weed are doing gummies. They're taking gummies, which is a lot more chic and you don't have to do the big smoking thing and need all the apparatus. So I think that it's those are simple explanations. And also people, you know, there seems to be a lot of trouble with sleeping these days and and weed can definitely exacerbate anxiety and be really, really, really bad for anxiety. But I also assume it can help people sleep. And so that would be another reason to do it as well. And also not waking up with a hangover the next day when you've got to go about all your all the duties and obligations of your life. Yeah, fuck that. I hate them. your obligations yeah all right speaking of which what are your duties and obligations this coming week i'm going to a wedding another wedding wedding season is upon us oh it has resumed and i can't it's going to be a super fun wedding and shout out to monica and candace candace listens she's one of my best best friends and one of my oldest friends and listens every week and live messages me as she listens <laughs> with her reactions, which I love. If you want to do like people do that a little bit in the Instagram DMs and I love it and I love reading them. But shout out to Monica and Candice, babysitting for free. Oh, MVP behavior. Yeah. So because when you go to a wedding and you've got little kids and you get a babysitter, the wedding essentially costs you $200 before you've even left the house. Yes. And so it is amazing to have such generous and caring friends. And my boys love them. Well, love Monica specifically. 
because <laughs> she pays them the most attention. <laughs> you seem more thrilled about the babysitting I than am. the wedding. I am. I'm thrilled about going out for free with Maddie. I'm, we're going to have a great time. What are you doing? I am going to see at Belvoir Street Theatre the adaptation of Charlotte Wood's novel, The Weekend. I loved that novel. Same. I, I, yeah, love, love, loved that novel and I am really excited to see it adapted. And I um, interviewed Charlotte about it recently and she speaks so, I mean, I, I'm a huge Charlotte Wood fan, both of her work and the human being that she is. And she spoke about how happy she was to be totally hands-off from the project and see other people take it and make it their own. And I just find that whole artistic exchange so deeply fascinating. I'm really looking forward to it. I really want to see that as well. If you want to get in touch with us, the best way is on Instagram at Cool Story. Free Bridey. The DMs are open. There's a lot going on on the page. The question we're putting up on Spotify this week is why do you think women are so obsessed with true crime? Thank you so much to Sam Devonport for producing this. Thank you, Sam. And please give us our five-star reviews, five-star ratings and reviews wherever you get your podcasts. Want to hear a cool story? Get it wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>